Hello listeners, and welcome to Midnight, the podcasting hour, a horror anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Oscar, Oscar Constantine. Allow me to share with you a tale of terror that originally appeared in Tales of the Unexpected issue. What? Older name, yes, you've heard of it? Well, let me put your mind at rest. I am not the famous warlock John Constantine. He's my cousin. We both grew up on the streets and docklands of Liverpool. I know, I know, a bit of a celebrity, that one. Subject of comic books and TV shows and a movie starring Neo. Everybody loves Johnny. He's the rock star of the family. Wasn't always like that, I can assure you. Everyone in the family thought Oscar would be the star. But I refused to conform to their expectations. I followed my passions, which is why today I am a very successful quality assurance associate for a Sheffield-based tech company. I may not be known as the Hellblazer, but I was Employee of the Week three times last year, so no regrets from Oscar. Anyway, I've been asked to spin you this spooky little yarn from... Unexpected issue 192, published in 1979. Fright at the End of the Tunnel was written by David Alacas, illustrated by Danny Tolentino and edited by Jack Harris. Johnson and French were inmates at the state prison, convicted of murder and armed robbery and sentenced to life without parole. But they had little intention of dying there, so when the opportunity came to escape, they jumped at it. Tasked with cleaning and maintaining the prison's boiler room, Johnson and French had used the time during the shift every day to dig a tunnel under the prison. The guard supervising the pair was a bit of an alky and prone to sleeping it off outside the boiler room. As this particular shift began, it was French's turn to crawl into the prison and dig the last stretch that would extend beyond the prison fence line. Johnson, meanwhile, hung back to service the boiler. He was just thinking about how lucky they were to have committed multiple murders in a state with no death penalty, when suddenly he heard French scream from inside the tunnel. Johnson crawled into the tunnel to check on his partner and finds French dead. In the dark, Johnny can barely see anything, but there's just enough light to glimpse the shocked look on French's face. The look it seems to Johnson, of a man who was frightened to death. Johnson crawls back to the boiler room, not wanting to meet whatever it was that killed his mate, when he hears a banging on the boiler room door. The guard has woken up, likely stared by the sound of French's screams, and wants to know why the boys locked the door. Panic starts to settle over Johnson. If he goes back to the boiler room, he'll be caught attempting to escape and he'll never get the chance again. He decides it's better to take his chance in the dark tunnel, hoping whatever killed French doesn't get him too. As the guard finally gets into the boiler room, he hears the sound of Johnson's screams echoing down the tunnel the inmates had dug. Later, the warden and several guards investigate the tunnel and find the bodies of Johnson and French, both electrocuted when they accidentally dug into the underground portion of the electrified fence. The warden notes that the prisoners may have escaped the electric chair, but they still came to a shocking end. Well, quite a hair-raising situation, I'm sure you'll agree. 
I guess it shows that not all horror stories come from demons and evil witches. I can't imagine what a chain-smoking warlock would have done in this story, but some quality assurance might have saved those lives, I assure you. Anyway, this delightful episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour will include Ryan's alien Siskoid discussing the Swamp Thing, and then Ryan and Rob Kelly reviewing an issue of The Phantom Stranger. That's all coming up after this short promo break. Stick around. Annual Halloween party canceled. Haunted house shut down this season. Then come to the house party that no force can stop. The house of Frankenstein. The Supermates are throwing their annual bash no matter what and inviting some of your favorite horror stars. Lon Chaney Jr. Anyone who enters here without my permission will be considered a trespasser. Lionel Atwell. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Christopher Lee. Don't use long words, Inspector. They don't suit you. Evil and anchors. We haven't been able to contact Count Alucard so far. Peter Cushing. I've told you before there are times when you shouldn't be alone. Bela Lugosi. He's mine. He don't belong to you. You go away. Barbara Shelley. There have been seven murders committed in the forest of Bandorf in the past five years. Basil Rathbone. But of course I know who did. Haven't you heard? The monster. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? And Boris Karloff. <laughs> Plus a few party crashers. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian or a vampire. And some amazing friends. Dragon Worst thing. Let them take care of your friends, my dear. <laughs> I'll take the robot. You take the wolf thing. Good. I've always had a way with animals. So RSVP to fireandwaterpodcast.com, iTunes, or Spotify, and don't miss the one Halloween party you can count on to be scary in a good way. Not the 2020 way. The House of Frankenstein. We're back, listeners. That is me, Ryan Daly, and my guest, the host of Zero Hour Strikes, Gimme That Star Trek, and many other shows on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. It's Siskoid. What's up, man? Uh, what is up? What is up is down. What is down is up. Yeah, it's we're, midnight. We're recording this quite a ways in advance, so don't, don't make any like relevant, time-sensitive pop culture exactly. references. Exactly. It's... Yeah. Um, I'm just, it's midnight. Where else are we? What are what are we doing? <laughs> what else, what else but talking about some horror comics? Um, <laughs> and the last time that you were here on the show, we discussed Swamp Thing issue three, and now we are going to cover issues nine and ten, which are Bernie Wrightson's last two issues on the title. And your appearance on this one was planned really since your last time here. Uh, we knew that you had to be the guest for issue nine. And the reason for that is events that occur in the story that we're about to discuss were revisited in a different comic that you and Bass discussed on First Strike, the Invasion podcast. So Correct. without getting into too many details, because I think we should kind of recap this story first and then get into what happened during Invasion, but do you remember, had you read this story or did you know what happened in the story before you read that Invasion tie-in? N- not, well, in the chronology... And probably not. I mean, I probably read the, the sequel first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I say that and I'm not really sure, but because I do have a few uh, old, uh, you know, Swamp Thing 
trade paperbacks that I may have read before I ever read issue 81, which I didn't read at the time either, that I only got later. So it's it's kind of fuzzy as far as the chronology goes. But when we did the show, I immediately realized in, in my doing my research that these were connected mm-hmm. and did read both back to back for that show. All right, well, uh, let's get into this one. Swamp Thing Issue 9 is brought to us by the same creative team as the previous eight issues. The writer is Len Wein, the editor is Joe Orlando, and the artist is Bernie Wrightson. This issue has a cover date of March-slash-April 1974, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the on-sale date was December 6th, 1973. The cover by Wrightson shows Swamp Thing rising out of the marshy water with his fists clenched, ready for action, as the orange sun sets behind the thick trees of the bayou. What do you think of this cover? I really like this cover. I, I, I mean, it, it, it seems generic at first, mm-hmm. and so it, it becomes the kind of archetypal Swamp Thing image of this era. You know, it's, it can be used for marketing purposes. You know, it, yep. this is a Swamp Thing shot. But it all—it's also actually in the story, so it's not—it's not a cheat. It's not—he's not doing. Uh, let's do a poster, and um, like many artists uh, often do, especially today, because then they know they can sell that artwork more easily than if it were tied to a story. I think uh, conventions and you know there are venues where they can sell the art later. Mm-hmm. That wasn't really the case back then, I don't think. So it is a shot from the story, and um, it just so happens to be like this super iconic shot of. Rights and Swamp Thing. Yeah, you're and at a glance it might seem generic, and I think that's just because this is the first time of all his covers that we've sort of gotten a normal kind of hero shot, <laughs> like like the her- character just sort of like rising yeah. up, ready for battle and everything. But it's almost a full body shot. We at least get him from like the waist up or like the mid thigh up as he's coming out of the water, and it's like there's there's no other distraction. It's not like He's not fighting somebody within the shot. There's no dialogue or, or anything else to distract. It's just this shot of Swamp Thing kind of giving you the body image, like the poster that you would see. But it's also the, the heroic shot that you can use for any purpose, and that's this was frequently used for trades or collections. As you said, this is like the archetypal image from this run. Almost all of the classic uh, reprint uh, stories or anything that collected these first ten issues until the recent like omnibus hardcover version they all recycled this one as the cover yeah it's not tied to any specific plot point is right. the thing so uh it, it makes it really work mm-hmm. plus I, the colors the colors are great on this yeah i mean you you would think this i mean this could have been the cover to issue one you would think why wasn't this the cover to issue <laughs> one yeah yeah it could have been but just rising up mm-hmm. and there is a sort of resurrection in this uh, in that moment is a sort of resurrection as well, so uh, kind of a hark- in the same spot where it happened originally. So it it's kind of it, it is an echo to the first issue, and maybe maybe Wrightson's going like, mm, this is what I should have done back then, <laughs> and uh, here's my chance before I leave because you know this is these are his last issues right. to to do the cover right. Maybe I don't know. I also really like the color of like the sunset in the background, but behind the trees and everything, the way that the bright, fiery orange and yellows kind of contrast against the green and the blue of of Swamp Thing in the bog. Yeah, and to use it in the logo, yeah. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's really the the stand. They're all good covers, gotta say, mm-hmm. but this is a standout. Yeah. 
All right, would you mind telling us the story of Swamp Thing Issue 9? I wouldn't mind. Uh, It's called The Stalker from Beyond. Our tale starts on a freight train going from Pittsburgh to Baton Rouge, uh, and on an empty wagon, transients notice one of their own wrapped in a blanket. They try to rob him and discover he's the Swamp Thing. They are thrown from the train for their trouble, but Alec Holland loses his balance and falls off as well. Having missed his train, he's forced to walk to Louisiana. Meanwhile, Matt Cable and Abby are spending the day at the beach when Matt is called back to Washington, D.C., where he's assigned to work with a military task force led by a Captain Brad Sampson. A UFO was sighted near the Louisiana swamps, where Cable had begun investigating the Holland murders, and his knowledge of the area could be of use. Swamp Thing has made it back to Huma, Louisiana, to the barn where he had been conducting his experiments, and his hope is that he can start working on a cure for his monstrous condition. But as he enters, he finds that an alien spacecraft is inside under repair, and his equipment has been cannibalized in the process. An alien, the narrator simply calls it, shows up and they briefly fight, but the alien overpowers the Swamp Thing and dumps his body in the swamp. Then Samson's team arrives and they find the alien and attack it. They slap a pair of high-tech manacles onto it and chain it to a tree. But Samson has no intention of following orders and bringing the creature back to base. He's even sabotaged the team's only means of calling for evac. No, he intends to kill it. Swamp Thing wakes up and looks at the scene from afar. He waits now realizing that the alien was peaceful, and in the night when Samson goes to make his move, he comes out of nowhere to make Samson's gunshot go wild and then immediately disappears. The task force awakens and a brawl breaks out between those who would have the alien dead and those who wouldn't, including Matt Cable. They don't notice when Holland sets the alien free and guides it back to its ship. In thanks, the alien seems to teleport Swamp Thing away just as Samson's team rushes in. But now it has had enough and traps them in a force field. And having learned enough English to at last communicate, it shames the humans, telling them it came in peace but found only violence here. The alien launches from inside the barn and blasts off into the atmosphere, but it never completed the necessary repairs to its ship. And it soon crashes back down onto the surface. Matt realizes Samson's unreasoning hatred for the other is a mirror of his own early feelings for the Swamp Thing. Big picture overall, what did you think of the story? The big picture is that I love the alien look. I know that's not big picture really, but I love (laughs) that alien. Uh, It is very alien. It is still humanoid. But it is very alien looking. There's nothing really like it. And, you know, like weird hands and weird under throat. And so all through the issue, it's a striking visual. And you've got these two monsters. And as usual, I think, I, I think I made that point way back when we talked about issue three, is that this whole, you know, Ween, uh, Wrightson period, or like these issues, each one is a throwback to a certain kind of monster movie. Yep. So we had Frankenstein, that was number three. We've had all sorts since then. Werewolf in issue four, we had Salem Witch Trials in issue five. We had the weird robot village sort of Stedford thing in six. We took a brief hiatus with the Batman issue. And then the last one was the Lovecraftian one. 
Yeah, and this one is, you know, the B-movie, 50s alien invasion movie with a twist. So it's a bit of Outer Limits as well. Yes, yeah. So that's the big picture. That's that. This is the story they are now doing, and somehow it all works. I mean, these are so disparate elements. You know, if each story is like like this one is sci-fi. So mm-hmm. does it really fit the horror mold? Uh, but it does. It, I mean, it works, and I think the visuals are a big part of that. And then, of course, man is the real monster. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it it definitely has that sort of feel of the fifties and sixties sci-fi which very much was a kind of subset of horror genre because a lot of times it was the fear of the unknown, a fear of the other, um, and, and making, telling a story which is essentially just a, a metaphor for xenophobia and yes. how destructive that was. And, and they, they make it pretty, pretty obvious. I mean, it is like, if it was subtle, like for the first, you know, 17, 18 pages or whatever, it stops being subtle when Samson pretty much just says, you're foreign, a damned alien. You don't belong here. It's like, all right. I think if anybody didn't get the point before. Yeah. One of the things is that these guys, Brad Samson and his team, uh, especially the ones that turn out to be bad are well even the good ones if there are good ones they're like the worst black ops team in the history of military history <laughs> because, because none of them are able to follow orders it's like he, he, Samson has trouble keeping them under control they yeah. attack without without being ordered to they, everybody gets called back all the time and even Samson himself is sabotaging his own team <laughs> who are these people this is the, this is lower than the JV SEAL Team Six or whatever like that. This is just really really unfortunate. Yeah, these guys are terrible. Um, I think Ween yeah. Ween you know prefaces this by having the operation called Operation Space Face, which is the, the <laughs> dumbest operation name. I think he's already he's telling us this Brad Sampson dude is an idiot. He's you know he, he has little imagination. He's a military meathead. Uh, he's a blunt instrument, mm-hmm. and uh, we're immediately, even though Matt Cable has sort of been an antagonist in the series, you know, we're we're totally on his side in this right. particular instance. Right. Yeah. Since he's been the one sort of hunting Swamp Thing through, yeah. because of his ignorance, and and this is sort of culminating at this point in the series uh, after Swamp Thing rescued him uh, in, in the Batman issue a couple issues ago. Like this is where he's really starting to doubt himself, and this is where. As the reader and the audience, we can start to feel that change for Cable, that he's actually a, a good man and his heart's in the right place. And to help facilitate that change in our view, yeah, he's juxtaposed with these yeah, – you, you said it right. The, yeah, they're meatheads of the worst order in, in the, the this space-face operation group. Yeah, Samson is just the worst. Um Going to the beginning, I found myself – when he fall, when Swamp Thing falls out of the train and rolls down the hill – this is like the third or fourth like Swamp Thing issue that begins this way with Swamp Thing. He's <laughs> taking some mode of, fall, of transportation and he falls out or has to jump out or something like that. You'll notice that when he's walking back to Louisiana on foot, the the narration mentions that he leaves like a slimy trail. So I think he's very slippery. So. <laughs> yeah. He fell out of a, a crashing plane. He had to jump off of a boat. He's fallen off of the back of trucks. And he's just like keeps rolling downhill everywhere he goes. So, I mean, I, I was talking about the narration, and I, I, I wanna I wanna mention that narration because there are two narrations really. 
we we are in there's those drippy captions which are mm-hmm. uh, essentially swamp things mind yeah and there are some like block you know blocky boxes which are more of an a more they are more omniscient let's say yeah. but they are on the alien side and those alien ones are never uh they're very, never they're never very conclusive about what the alien is thinking i like that i like the idea that he this is a silent alien until he learns to speak uh, and we were kind of in its head, but not. The narrator is never really sure what it's thinking. He's just surmising. And I like that uncertainty uh, that eventually crystallizes into, into certainty when the creature speaks. Uh, but the whole thing is I, I find horror comics of the 70s sometimes very like the purple prose really smothers my, you know, it's, yeah. it smothers my spirits up. It's oh, this is heavy going. Uh, a heavy going read, but not Swamp Thing. I don't. I I find that uh, where maybe um, let's say uh, like Tomb of Dracula by Wolfman or uh, others that have written that, I found that purple prose very difficult. Uh, but Ween on Swamp Thing, not the case. I I I feel like there's a real rhythm and it, even like the first words struck me in this. The very first words are uh, what is it? Night freight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, night freight colon and then it goes on to, to to set up the train my eyes saw fright night immediately you know it's like yeah. it's like night freight fright night and there's like a there is a poetry there that that it's like sort of fools the eye and i feel like all the way through we are on that train we are moving through that that prose i, I feel in a very uh in, in a in a way that doesn't make me um, you know, disengage from the story in the way that certain other writers have made me. Right, right. I uh, I love that Weenan writes and set the the Matt and Abby scene on the beach. That's not typically blue sky and sunny. Like, oh my god! That's, that's how you uh, everybody sort of thinks of a beach scene, but it's not. <laughs> it's overcast and windy. The waves are crashing. It's obviously cold, despite the fact that they're not wearing very many clothes. <laughs> that is quite the bikini there, but uh, she Abby looks great. But again, I asked this question in the previous episode: I was like, what is their status exactly? Because she left this small Eastern European country with Matt for reasons. I don't even <laughs> know that we like we we knew what the reasons were, but she she left with him. He brings her to America. She accompanied him on like an FBI mission investigation a couple of issues ago. It's like, is she his partner? Are they dating? Do we don't know? I mean, this scene obviously, the fact that after they've been rescued and they've been going through this this trauma, they he's like on the sanctioned vacation or whatever. So this is a, a mental health break, and they're taking it together. There's clearly some sort of intimacy between them based on their body language while he's going through this whole kind of trying to reconcile the fact that, you know, Swamp Thing saved him and maybe he's been hating this thing all this time for the wrong reasons. Um, what did you think of this scene, that scene on page four? Well, I, I, I love the idea. I mean, a day at the beach in a horror comic. Yeah. <laughs> this is what it is. I've been to the beach under these conditions. Atlantic Canada can have eventually you want to race to the beach. You want to go to the beach, even though it's not quite, Oh, it's a nice day. But by the time you get to the beach, you know, on the ocean, it's, it's windy as hell. So it's, you're not getting, it's, you know, it's drops five degrees, just going, you know, 20 minutes to the coast. So uh, I've, I've, I've been in, I've seen those conditions, although maybe the waves aren't so big here. We've got a uh, Prince Edward Island kind of yeah. acts as a buffer. 
for the ocean. So I've seen this and I, I feel like this is a real it's a real beach. Right. Since then, a real beach, because that, you know, there's that straw sort of beach vegetation yep, yeah, uh, that very often is not pictured in beach scenes. Mm-hmm. So this is very much like a side road. You just get off the road, go to the beach. It's not a public beach. It's not, you know, it's not a, an area that's been um, you know, you know, raked. And you know, it's, so it, it feels more real. And also it's a manifestation of his psyche you know he's in turmoil so the weather uh, ob- uh obliges which is a very horror-y kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the the bottom left panel with abby like in my in my reprint the thing that she's holding isn't really colored so i i couldn't figure it out but it looks like she's holding like a, a long strand of grass like a frond or something like that like that's just like kind of delicately holding it in her fingers but in my reprint, it's just her waist. So I'm like, what is she holding? And the fact that she's behind him, he's got his back to her, and I was like, is she going to strangle him with something? <laughs> I was like, what? what is this? What is happening in this? But, but no, she's just, it looks like she just plucked out a long strand of grass that she was, like, tickling her yeah. or something. She was going to kill him, and then yeah. this John Constantine-looking go- dude shows up. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, Cable's reaction. And he's like, he... he because he predicts it. He's like, I'll lay odds the home office sent him to fetch us back to Washington. He's like, Mr. Cable, the home office sent me. And he screams with his like uh, fists up in the air. He's like, I knew it. I knew it. Somebody upstairs hates me. It's like, calm down, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Matt Cable. Yeah, of course. So. Well, he'll learn a lesson in this. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's all about him. Really, it's about him. And the Swamp Thing is just a mirror of Matt Cable, where he, too, first acts aggressively against the alien yep, and then has to check his own biases. And you said it, and I completely agree. I love the design of this thing, the way this looks. I mean, chalk it up to Wrightson, who who comes up with a creature design that I have never seen before. It's reminiscent. It reminds me of a little bit of the space jockey from the movie Alien. Um, and, and course, yeah, I yeah. Mean, the suit. It's the suit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and think that's it. Like, it just, it does, it's not like some just weird sort of alien. It's wearing clothing. It's got a space suit with a bubble helmet. And, I mean, probably not oxygen, not oxygen because it can't breathe it. But it's got some sort of atmospheric tank hooked up to its back to, to pump it full of whatever kind of gas or, 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 you know, atmosphere it needs to breathe, but it's got tools and weapons and like these like boots, but like, it looks like it's a it's an alien but sort of utilitarian version. Uh, so it, it does kind of remind me of the space jockey from Alien but, I mean, this would have preceded that by six years. Oh yeah, it also I mean, looks it, like a... At least, at least five years from when the creature would have been designed. So. It's kind of like a mutant ninja turtle yeah, yeah. In, in sort of shape, but that's also years away. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I love all the intricate details in the equipment, you know. Yes, so, yeah. yeah, no, and and it's supposed to have like they, they mentioned something about it having like elephant feet or something. You know, it's not they're He's got boots. They're like trunks. But, yeah, it's just yeah, it's, it's like they're really like big stumps. So uh, no, it's it's really a creature that. I mean, it looks good and looks like a unified sort of monster, but I've never quite seen that design before. No, the face is, it looks like an aquatic insect. It, it has a little bit of an aquatic feel to it, but like almost like a, like a crustacean or some sort of like bottom feeder type of thing, like, like you would find in like the ocean or something. Or, yeah. Yeah. Monstrous, but cute. I think, <laughs> you know, there is that element that you can believe that it is peaceful or a good guy by the end. 
um, that, without it being – I think it would have been signaling it too much if it had been so hideous that then it would have it would have added that that really trite kind of twist that I've seen a hundred times where, oh, it's ugly, but it's beautiful on the inside. You know, that that dichotomy that what it, what you think is ugly is 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 how you judge the book uh, you know, by that ugly cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen that too many times. So here it's not quite that. I mean, I, the, the everybody that fights the alien thinks it is an invader mm-hmm. because of context. Not because of necessarily of its appearance, although that's part of it, obviously. I, I think we're going to need a ruling from the girls. You're going to have to show this alien to Natalie, Shotgun, Isabel, Amelie, and Josie, and, and have them vote. Is it hot or not? So. Okay. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll let you know in the comments. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, yeah, I think, I think we covered it. I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I need to say for this one. Um, well, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll throw something out there. As far as this isn't very horror-y in the sense that it, it, it does have a science fiction creature. But the Swamp Thing still brings it. That that whole sequence where he gets his hand shot off and it mm-hmm. grows back, that is the kind of you know squishy kind of body horror yep. element uh, that, that I'm looking for in, in this series. And we'll get more of it in the next issue, obviously. But, uh, but here, the, the Swamp Thing is overmatched in a way that a later Alan Moore, post Alan Moore and post Alan Moore, Swamp Thing would not be overmatched by this creature. But uh, in, in this case, it's still learning its abilities. And uh, the creature does win in that fight and lets itself be captured, I think. And then, you know, it easily gets rid of the uh, of the back. And then it, I mean, then it crashes. I mean, it still ends on an irony mm-hmm. where because Earth is so inhospitable. Yeah. Uh, it leaves before finishing repairs and doesn't make it. And then in the sequel, in Swamp Thing Volume 2, number 81, another alien comes. And this, that was the sequel that we did on Episode 17 of First Strike, the Invasion podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, another a similar alien, an identical alien, comes to Earth uh, and it is looking for its mate, which is this one, which mm. is this guy. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that story... Uh, it also ends on uh, humanity is the monster, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, the humanity in this case is Guy Gardner of the Justice League. Oh God, he I destroys that. <laughs> destroys the mate's ship. So um, after you know, so it, it is a story also where Swamp Thing is not there because Swamp Thing is taken out of the equation by the Dominators, mm-hmm. who fear the Earth Elemental yeah. uh, could you know turn the balance to turn the. Uh, turned to war against them. So it is a story about it is Abby and uh, whoever else is in the story at by that point, and um, they deal with this alien creature that they don't have any context for, you know, because they're not in, you know, they're not in this space. Abby is in the story, but she's not. She does never sees that alien. Mm-hmm. So um, it is new to them, but we as readers may recognize. But if we don't recognize it because we're new readers, it would not have mattered. Uh, there's just enough context for you to to get it. Yeah, and and as you alluded, I, I I like how it's taking the the classic sci-fi trope of not just the the fact that the xenophobia is is wrong, but pumping that up and showing the alien has landed on Earth, which provokes fear. But we are meant to realize that humanity is too uncivilized and too barbaric that the alien has to leave. And and we can't earn the sort of utopian gifts or, or knowledge that could come from the alien contact. I mean, this has been done 
I mean, I think even like the very first Simpsons Halloween special did a spoof on the same subject um, when the family it's was... It's a classic. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty classic. So. Um, just before we move on from this one, any any particular pages or, or examples of the art that you really liked in this one? Oh, well, I mean, if I had to have something on my wall, you mean? Um, yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> then I think the full body shot of the alien. Yep is uh, probably my choice, although there are a lot of great pages, a lot of great panels. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Bernie Wrightson, for God's sake. Right. I I mean, yeah, the, the, the splash page of the, of the creature is phenomenal, but I also really like page 10, where after they fight and, and Swamp Thing is defeated, perhaps dead, when it takes him and when the alien kind of like lays his body low in the and buries him in the, the swamp in the water, there's something very tender about it, and you kind of change yeah. your, your feelings about this thing. That's where you kind of realize that the, uh, the appearances are not what they are not, you know, appearances are deceiving here. And it's the page that uh, where the alien looks the most like it, you know, it reminded me of that pogo tribute that comes later that is in the uh, saga of the swamp thing. Yep. I think early Morshes. Um, they do like a spoof on Pogo because that's also a comic, you know, a comic strip that takes place in a in a bayou. Anyway, uh, it's an odd one. It's a very odd issue, but the colors and the style and the, the shape of the monster's face mm-hmm. all reminded me of that that particular comic. Yeah, that's a, it's it's a beautiful one. Last little note, just at the very very end, the preview image we get after the story is over when it says <laughs> next the man who would not die. At a glance, I would I would think it's talking about the patchwork man again. <laughs> it's like oh yeah, it's perfect that Cisco is here. We're getting we're getting back to that creature, but connected. Yeah, not the case though. Uh, all right, Swamp Thing issue ten has a May slash June nineteen seventy four cover date, but the on sale date was most likely February seventh of that year. The cover shows Swamp Thing engaged in battle with some deformed humanoid creatures that seem awfully similar to the Unmen from way back in issue 2. Featured prominently is one especially large monster that looks like a serious physical threat to Swamp Thing, and we will learn more about that character once we get inside. What do you think of this cover? Uh, well, It's another great one. I think that monster uh, that we're not... Apparently not revealing who it is right quite yet uh, is uh, uh, is a flesh colored swamp thing. I mean, it's more deformed, but it has a similar face and mm-hmm. the, you know face structure, and that, that becomes much more uh, evident once we get to the story and see it you know face first. Um, yeah, the the unman, if we'll if you'll allow me to call them that, the unman to the in the bottom corner. Who has it's just like a torso, a head, torso, and just arms. Uh, it stops at the torso, and the arms are sort of walking. And then, just where the stomach would be, there's an extra face there. <laughs> that one is creepy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but no, I mean, again, I think a lot of these covers work not just because of the body language and, you know, writes in those, and he's doing the same thing with the trees in the back that are sort of faded out. Uh, but it's the color schemes. They're built to be – to work with color uh, where this – like the green here and the pink of the flesh monsters and then the blue in the back are all – just make it pop uh, much more than if they were in black and white or if somebody had screwed up the, the color job. Yeah. 
All right. The Man Who Would Not Die is scripted by Len Wein, while Bernie Wrightson is credited with plotting the story for the first and only time in the series. Wrightson obviously drew the story, too, and Joe Orlando edited the whole thing. An escaped convict named Hunk Dory runs for his life through the Louisiana swamp. He's been running so hard for so long since he escaped from a chain gang that it's made him bitter and angry enough to kill the next person he sees. As fate would have it, the next person is an elderly black woman who sits alone next to a steaming hot cauldron near an old wooden shack in a clearing in the woods. Hunk throws the chain that still binds the shackles on his wrists around the woman's neck, planning to kill her and eat whatever she's cooking in the cauldron. But a thundering voice tells Hunk to stop, and he looks up to see the moss-covered swamp thing emerge from the edge of the clearing. Hunk pushes the woman aside and runs at the swamp thing, but only gets a few steps before he falls down. Dead. Apparently, he had been shot several times during his initial escape, and the wounds only now persisted enough to kill him. Unfazed by the threat on her life or the ghastly sight of the Swamp Thing, the old woman introduces herself as Auntie Deluvian and casually goes back to sitting by the cauldron and smoking her pipe. She says she has seen far more horrible things in this part of the swamp which is our cue to flash backwards more than a hundred years to when a massive cotton plantation sat on that very same piece of land. The house back then was lavish and grand, but it was overseen by a tyrannical slave master named Samson Parmenter. Parmenter loved whipping and torturing the slaves. Inflicting pain was the only thing that gave him pleasure, or so the slaves thought until he took notice of an attractive slave girl named Elsbeth. When Elsbeth resisted Parmenter's advances, he retaliated by having her torn limb from limb. This brutal murder enraged the other slaves, especially Elsbeth's fiancé, a one-armed man called Black Jabal. Jabal defiantly called out Parmenter, and for this affront, the slave was tied to a tree and burned alive. As the fire took him, Jabal cursed Parmenter, saying not even death would stop him from avenging Elsbeth, and everyone like Parmenter would pay in time. Parmenter scoffed at the curse by brutalizing even more slaves, until one night someone or something, went into the house and tore Parmenter to pieces, spreading his parts all around the house for the slaves to discover. Auntie Deluvian tells the Swamp Thing that the plantation fell into disuse and disrepair. Most of the slaves ran off, but Auntie had nowhere else to go, so here she sits staring into her cauldron. But she's got enough situational awareness to tell Swamp Thing that they're being watched by unholy eyes. Swamp Thing looks around and sees a pair of beings watching them from the clearing. The things suddenly bolt into the woods and Swamp Thing chases. He can't get a good look at the beings, but something about their shape and gait is unnatural, inhuman, and yet also familiar. The memory finally coalesces as Swamp Thing bursts through the woods into an ancient and overgrown cemetery in the woods. And there, amongst the old stone graves, are seven misshapen, mutated monsters that Swamp Thing last encountered in a Balkan castle in, the, in Issue 2. The Unmen, those terrible creatures created by the mad scientist Anton Arcane, the same Arcane who stands among them in a new, terrifying body that is even larger and more grotesque than the Swamp Thing. 
arcane villain monologues how he died, falling from his castle back in issue two, but his lifeless corpse was salvaged by his unmanned servants. Led by Cranius, the creature that's basically a brain sewn to a hand, the unmanned carried arcane to a secret laboratory and transferred his still-functioning brain into a new body composed of unmanned parts. Arcane lived again, but his hideous new body was ill-suited for world domination, unlike the Swamp Thing's body for some reason. Still obsessed with taking over Swamp Thing's body, Arcane and six of his trusty unmen swam across the ocean and walked to the swamp, waiting for Swamp Thing to return there. And now here they are, and Arcane still wants Swamp Thing's body, so they fight. Arcane tells his minions not to interfere because he doesn't want Swamp Thing's body damaged. He needs it in working condition if he is going to enslave humanity. Curiously, at the sound of the word enslave, a gust of wind rushes through the swamp, a wind that seems to carry an angry howl with it. Arcane doesn't seem to notice. He just proceeds to fight Swamp Thing. As he's pounding on the monster that used to be Alec Holland, he keeps rehashing his plan to be the master of the world. I mean, he seriously keeps hammering home the idea of turning people into slaves. Like, that one word is very important to his master plan. And every time he says it, the wind gets louder and stronger. Eventually, Arcane and his men take note when the ground begins to shake. The old stone graves fall, or erupt from the soft ground, and where the graves once stood, now are men, the long-dead slaves of Samson Parmenter, whose rest has not been peaceful. Led by the ghost of Black Jabal, the ghosts descend on Arcane and his unmen. The one-armed ghost tells Swamp Thing not to get involved, and commands him to sleep. Swamp Thing lies back in the moss and slips away into unconsciousness as Arcane and his brood are swarmed by the slave ghosts. Swamp Thing awakens sometime later, alone. The gravestones are back in their places, and in fact, there are seven new stones among them, markers for Anton Arcane and his six unmen. Swamp Thing walks away, back to the clearing where he left Auntie Deluvian, but she's not there, nor is the cauldron or the shack. The only thing he finds is another gravestone with the name Elsbeth Deluvian carved on it. As the sun comes up, Swamp Thing wanders off again, wondering if the whole night's events had all been a dream. They weren't. (laughs) But how could you tell? (laughs) And I ask that because... Was there any consequence to this story? Well, yes, in the sense that this... You know, if you follow Arcane's particular trajectory, right? Yeah. Well, I guess you could skip this. But I... uh, Because I also have a connection to this story in the sense that I've, I've covered it on my blog fairly recently because uh, I, I have a feature on the blog that's called Who's This? The relation to the occasional podcast series Shag and Rob do over at the Who's Who podcast. Uh, but I take every entry in Who's Who and and pick a story and then talk about the character and how that character is used in stories using that one example. It's very often uh, you know, random. But in this case, it's like I knew Anton Arcane from when he was Dr. Frankenstein. And through my readings of the Alan Moore series, I knew him as this like bug-like demon version that that possesses Matt Cable and so on. That that is used today, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but in, on the entry, when you look at the Who's Who entry, there are three Anton Arcanes. One of them is this big flesh monster, 
And I wanted, okay, so I know these two versions and I want to read a story that I'm not familiar with that is about the flesh, the flesh swamp thing, the flesh thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, this is it. I thought there was more to it, but no, this is the one where he is resurrected by his unmen and here dies and now goes to hell. So you could skip it and say he dies in issue three and then straight to demon. Right. But yeah, I, something about his something about being in hell transforms him physically. You could just make yeah. it. Yeah. But if we but but there is the, the physical transformation. So if you look at the bug monster and even in like in the loose leaf who's who, the the demon one looks like this. It doesn't look like the bug. Uh even the bug has this face. So there is a transitional element where Anton Arcane goes from being a guy to having that face. And the reason he has that face in hell and from now on is because the unmen patched him up wrong. Right. Right. So that that is the point of it, if if you will. But it's also supposed to be, like all these stories, a standalone, even though it's part of that arc. It's a standalone. It is, in this case, it's about the undead or returning from the dead, I guess. There's not like a specific monster, but you got voodoo, so you've got sort of zombies. You've got arcane is rebuilt, so he's sort of it's like uh, reanimator more yeah. like. And you've got uh, what I would call revenants, because the the slaves that rise up from the graves are not in a decayed uh, condition. Right. They are they are ghosts, and I mean an antediluvian, quite the pun. Mm-hmm. Uh, antediluvian is also a ghost. Yep. Because it ha- it so happened that she wasn't. She wasn't actually there. She was a spirit. Uh, and then the, the spirits, at the end, there's maybe more twists than the story needs. It's like, <laughs> everybody, you know, it's like, okay, this happens, and then something wakes, wakes up, and it's like everybody, all the unmen are, are in a grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's like these tombs have appeared. And then on top of that, the twist that Antediluvian was just a spirit, and, and of course, that's all on the heels of the twist of the returning ghost. So, um, the number a lot of twists up. and the number of Deus Ex Machinas is just compounding one on top of another. Um, I mean, I think the so okay. So this is Wrightson's last issue, and I get the sense that he wanted to plot the story. Like he, I mean, he gets plotter credit. I think he figured, yeah. he wanted to go out on a story that he wanted to tell. So I'm assuming there was stuff in here that he really wanted. I think he wanted to draw the unmen again. That was his type of horror. He liked that. He enjoyed that. Um, and I think Ween has even said that. Yeah, that was all his idea. He wanted to draw that stuff. So we just wrote it into the story in the, like the second issue. Um, and I think he, he had this idea for Arcane, so he brought him back looking like that. And it's a great visual for Arcane. It's that, I mean, that, that's the way like the new 52 would do Arcane. They would show him, and this does more or less set him up on the, the sort of trajectory to be Swamp Thing's arch nemesis, you know, going forward. Uh, because well, like, just based on issue there, two. There are two real questions to ask is if, like, say this issue doesn't exist, mm-hmm. does Anton Arcane ever return? Without this, or and do, does Anton Arcane uh, become the Swamp Thing's archenemy if there's not this issue where he is a physical match for the Swamp Thing? Both are scientists turned into monsters that look similar, that one of the flesh world, one of the plant world, and they fight. And that cements our image of them in interlocked in a battle. 
if uh, if this doesn't happen, if there, he doesn't become a monster and he's just like this Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein character from early on, and who happens to be the uncle of Abby, of course. I mean, there's a family tie. Does he ever return? Does, does Alan Moore uh, bring him back? Does any of that happen? So I think... I think based on those questions, I might argue the point that the legacy of this issue and and its relevance and its importance is more meta is not the word, but it has more to do with sort of the the editorial and the publishing history of of you know edit, like creative decisions that were made after this, but not necessarily in story points and everything like that. Um, uh, and I, because I, I think it was it was the the author's choices to bring this back and to make th- this this more important than it necessarily needed to be. I think based on just what we have have in the story, is probably what I would argue. Yeah, um, well, it's it's not as percussive mm-hmm. an event as when Alan Moore brings him back as the yeah. bug demon that possesses Matt Cable because th- there it's super personal, mm-hmm. but in this case. Uh, he's after Swamp Thing's body, and we never quite understand why, unless we retcon it to say he studied the Swamp Thing's body, and he already knows it's a plant. He's the Earth elemental. He already knows there's more power to be unlocked there, yeah. or something. Yeah, something that is not in Len Wein's mind at all. You know, right? Uh, but um, but it is not. You know, Abby does not appear. So the family connection is lost. It's not like Abby reacting to her uncle being this depraved, naked creature, monster. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just it just becomes a battle. A lot like, like the early issues of Saga of the Swamp Thing, which is when I came on board, pre-more, were very often Monster of the Week. This is still – or the month. But this is Monster of the Month, yes. But it doesn't – like Anton Arcane could have been any – blobby flesh monster in a sense you know i I get it it's not necessarily it's not it doesn't have like that visceral impact except it's it's a monster battle that we can enjoy as a monster battle with a lot of horror tropes and Mm -hmm. twist endings thrown on top of it to call it like a voodoo story i think ultimately i think this is the weakest of the 10 issues um, and I think it's because he they, writes in through too much into the plot. It's too cluttered. And Ween's script kind of struggles to make sense of it. Because first we have this fugitive who shows up and then just dies. Like he presents himself as a threat and then dies. Okay, that's one deus ex machina. He was shot days ago and only now dies before he can fight. Um, and then the old witch tells, the, or the auntie Deluvian tells this story about slavery and revenge and everything. And I mean, if you're if you're setting stories in the bayou in the deep south, and you want them to be relevant, I, I mean, I, I think the literal the ghosts of America's past and all of the the horror that men are capable of are just are are deeply rooted, haha, rooted there. Uh, so I think you would I think you would need to tell stories like this from time to time, uh, and, and it's really good. And I think they they set that up. But again, that's like. A third of the way into the story, or halfway through the story, they just seemingly abandon that, 
and then we throw in the Unmen and Arcane's return, and it's just a rock'em sock'em fight, and it's just like Arcane just wailing on on Swamp Thing and stuff, and it's it's okay because he looks nasty, he's he's hulking misshapen, he's kind of got a hunchback, his head doesn't seem to sit right on his like shoulders, like it's almost like uh, asymmetrical. His arms are way too long c- compared, and like his. His midsection is too elongated, while his upper torso is kind of truncated. It's just a weird, freaky body design that writes and did so well. But then the script, it's just its like, okay, we get it. Slavery, master, I'm a slave the world and everything. Yeah, it's like, it, it's kind of, it, it seems, it, it reads as a little kind of preposterous supervillain plane coming from a monster that looks like this. And then it sets a, it, it brings up the 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 ghosts, the revenants. I think you you picked up the right word to describe them as they come back, and they come in as a DSX Mika that saves Swamp Thing's dude. And Swamp Thing isn't even conscious for the last bite. They're like, "Hey man, just go to sleep. Just go chill. We, we got this covered." And he does. And then the problem is over. And then he goes back to Auntie Deluvian, and she's not there. She never was really. There. And it's it. I think there's. The return of Arcane in this type of battle could have been a really, really great story if it had, like, if it was the crux of the entire issue. And the slavery angle and the ghost of Black Jabal could have been a really great American Gothic, American horror story type of ghost story baked, baked in that. And I think that could have been a great issue. And I think they tried to do both and under cha- or shortchanged both, was my feeling. It's not a bad book. It's it's entertaining still, but I think of ten issues of Swamp Thing that we've covered, I think this is the weakest. I think the Southern Gothic story is is kind of like Swamp Thing is crashing a house of mystery mm-hmm. because the, the, you know it's like an old EC comic horror story or a house of mystery or secrets or whatever else they had back then. That's the story that is being told, and Swamp Thing is. And not for the last time, I gotta say. I mean, there's a lot of Swamp Thing stories where he is an observer. Maybe yeah, this works yeah. better as a Man Thing story in a way. But the, the the idea that the monster is just like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is happening? I walked into a horror story that does not star me, and that's what it is. He's he's in the story. Anton Arcane is his story. That battle is his story, but. He's been witness to this House of Mystery voodoo Southern Gothic story that's been told in flashback and that's got to resolve. And then basically Anton Arcane and the Unmen are uh, bushwhacked by the um, that story, that other story. So that, that other – you know, the characters of that other story show up and say, whoa, you're fighting in our – on our cemetery, and uh, you keep talking about slavery, and you called us out, but we're part of that other story that is now crashing yours, mm-hmm. and we're going to put an end to, to to this. Swamp Thing, you, you take a sleep, and then we'll take care of this, and when, when Swamp Thing gets up, it's like, oh, the other story resolved and took Arcane with it, and that's that's what's kind of happening. So it's like... This is maybe maybe it is like if if Wrightson wanted to do this maybe it is an old House of Mystery idea or something that you know he's adapting to Swamp Thing mm-hmm. you know be that as it may I think uh, you know uh, one of the things that is pretty unimpeachable really is a lot of the atmospherics that he brings in the art so regardless of the script you've got a lot of, I mean 
Arcane is a very, um, yes, a misshapen monster, an interesting design. But he's also, I mean, the real horror is that there is, you got to put shadow over him because he is naked. So <laughs> the real horror is his gnarly dong flapping around <laughs> all through this, you know? Uh, and Wrightson has to put shadow in the crotch, but uh, but he uses the bayou and those woods or to um, to really cast interesting shadows. I mean, there's there's one where you see all the branches on the back of the creature. He's a little bit. He's so pale that he can be this this screen that you can project shadows on and uh, really make the frames interesting. Given given the shape and the look of some of the other unmen, maybe the arcane dong that you mentioned is actually like a hand or another face or something. <laughs> well, I, one of my questions throughout this is: okay, Cranium rebuilt him, and Cranium is supposed to be psychic, and he's also super smart. Uh, why did he do such a bad job of it? And <laughs> is it? Well, if you're going to be the king of the unmen, you've got to be an unman. You know, if, if you're going to be the king of the of a monstrosity, of the monstrosities, you've got to be a monstrosity yourself. And it's just like in my image, uh, you created me. <laughs> you created me as a misshapen monster, mm-hmm. and I'm doing you a favor in a way. Or is it revenge? Do crani- does cranium and the, the rest of the unmen do they resent their their forms? Uh, I- and uh, this is just like vengeance. I kind of like the former idea. I think the unmen would have a very skewed idea of conventional beauty. And he's, like, <laughs> and he's just like, what? I made you an Adonis. You're the hottest unmen I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, Ar- Arcane is, is pretty ugly. He wants to steal an equally ugly body, maybe a less ugly body, but still an ugly body. Um, so he doesn't really care about that necessarily. He wants, he thinks he can be immortal in Swamp Thing's body. Uh, and that this shape, I guess, is not immortal. Although he can walk through the Atlantic Ocean uh, all the way through. Apparently. Yeah. Apparently. So it seems pretty immortal to me. I, I'm not sure what. So th- this this is why I'm retconning it to say, yeah. okay, and, and why he's he got to know things. Yeah, why he thinks Swamp Thing's body is superior when he is able to beat Swamp Thing up with his own body. He's able to physically dominate him. Like, Yeah, exactly. So, um, so there are questions in the script. The script asks many questions, mm-hmm. but uh, as a you know, as a piece of art where you you're flipping the pages, you're looking at the a monster fight. Um, there's a lot of happening. There's a lot of atmospherics. I think every uh, every uh, graveyard cemetery scene is very moody. Uh, so all of that stuff for me works. It works as a visual. Mm-hmm. Art. Uh, I mean, I can't say enough good about how good the art is. With Wrightson loved the Unmen. Clearly, he, he had so much fun drawing these things. This was something he was passionate about. Uh, maybe that just linked to his instincts because he never drew conventionally handsome or attractive normal human beings. They all had very characterized, like uh, unusual faces and, and attributes. So maybe he just he leaned toward the body horror, and this was just the natural extension of that. This was him giving into his instincts. Was these unmen? Yeah, definitely. And even you know, it's like a page uh, six where Swamp Thing is talking to Antediluvian, mm-hmm. uh, just like the, the the lighting, the lighting on these things, where mm-hmm. the way the fire, her fire is, is hitting your face, uh, and where the shadows are, where the, 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 the lighter spots are. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so gorgeous. I mean, it feels like, it feels like the comic book page 
is unsuitable. <laughs> you know, it's like the, that old newsprint is almost unsuitable and yet sort of worked as a canvas mm. for the, this, this kind of grime, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's very, very strong illustrations. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts on Swamp Thing or the character in general? Well, I mean, I like that. I like to have uh, that. I've been able to revisit these older stories because they feel of a piece with later Swamp Thing, which is maybe justly the more famous take on the the, the character. Um, like when I first encountered Swamp Thing, it was this format, even though it was like the eighties, and it was okay, you know, but. Uh, I soon got into the Alan Moore stuff, freaked me out, as I I probably mentioned before. Uh, And those comics and then stuff that came later, but might have been weaker, you know, came back up strong again, depending on the writer and artist teams. But I feel like it's already there. It's there in the the 70s where what Alan Moore was doing is really seems a progression from this era. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's the same feeling of experimenting with uh the genre and the 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 art is certainly of a superior level just like uh the John Totalbin stuff mm-hmm. and Steve Bissett later so I, I i feel that 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 connection maybe saga of the swamp thing in the early when it started in the 80s was not you know was an attempt to recapture that and didn't quite make it but once alan moore is on it now it, I see the connection, and I don't think you know. I it's a lot of people like uh, say that you know it's Alan Moore is is the the Swamp Thing writer, mm-hmm. but I, he's really working on a foundation that was set here, and that he, you know his stuff doesn't work if this didn't work as well as it did, which is true of a lot of Alan Moore. <laughs> right, and <laughs> I think will- what I think what you find is Swamp Thing is a mutable, adaptable type of character that you can take in different directions and and you can tell tell different types of stories. I think Alan Moore's Swamp Thing was, I'm going to use the word sophisticated to borrow the, the vertigo, sophisticated suspense, and, and was telling stories that were more psychologically probing and a little bit more cerebral and, and, and philosophical and ambiguous. Yeah. Existential, yeah. Yes, yeah, very much so. Whereas these stories, and I think a, a good chunk of the saga of the Swamp Thing stories by Pasco and Tom Yates, I think a lot of those are, I don't want to call them simplified, but a little bit more comic booky in terms of just, you know, sort of like comic book adventures borrowing on classical monster tropes. Um, you know, in, inheriting the the type of universal and hammer monster stories that that and gothic stories that people grew up with, and just throwing this this monster muck version of Ben Grimm into those stories, and, and what would happen there? And I just think it shows that there's Swamp Thing can be told. Uh, Swamp Thing can be can fit into lots of different pegs, and or Swamp Thing can be pegged into lots of different holes. And you can tell different types of stories with him, much which you can do with lots of great, you know, comic book superheroes. We've talked about that. You can do that with Batman. You can do that with Daredevil. I think Swamp Thing is another character that who who can be formatted to different tones and different types of stories. 
As, yeah, long, there's as, a long as, of, as long as they are within a type of horror or suspense or supernatural type of world. I think it, it's not even bizarre to see him hanging with the superheroes because mm-hmm. it's happened. I'm not saying that's the that is the take, right, right. <laughs> you know, the take I want to see. But when Swamp Thing shows up, you know, at Superman's funeral or whatever, it it doesn't seem out of place. It it still feels like okay, this is this world. And when they they started adding other elementals uh, in you know Captain Adam and, and different series, uh, Firestorm, obviously. Um. It was all based on okay. Well, let's, these are these other elementals, and so they are part of Swamp Thing's world. And it doesn't feel weird. Those aren't the stories. You know, I don't want Swamp Thing to to hang in the Justice League, mm-hmm. but he, he he can seem you know he can seem to be in that world as well because he's faced threats from other planets. Because by this you know by this point he's he's done time travel. He's gone to other worlds. He's you know he's. Uh, uh, he's uh, he's done like high fantasy sort of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, as well as horror and sci-fi and superheroics and uh, and assembled a big cast around him and and you know reintroduced many supernatural horror beings from other comics into you know it's like you know Alan Moore did reinvent other characters mm-hmm. uh, through his series. So uh, I think Swamp Thing is justifiably one of we never do this we never say we say oh yes it's superman batman wonder woman you know and then we go down the line aquaman's next green lantern you know sort of but we skip swamp thing because he's not a superhero but i think if you look at dc's canon of stars uh your top five should have swamp thing in there he had two movies he had a television Mm -hmm. series he had a second television series he had an animated series um, I, def- I mean, uh, people who people who might not even know he's a comic book character know that uh, know of Swamp Thing, right? And uh, I think he, I mean, he's almost like, you know, it's like he's he's almost a character type, a monster type mm-hmm. at this point. But he's had many many series. Some you know, at least one of them went past uh, issue one hundred. Um, so this is, a, and he keeps returning. I mean, this is a character they keep returning to, and that has some some visibility even in pop culture. Um, So, yeah, I think that when you're talking about, like, DC's Big Five, I don't know who you want to bump off, (laughs) but Swamp Thing kind of has to be in that top five. He's just not part of the the, the same crowd. But if you're looking at, like, DC Comics as a whole, regardless of genre, uh, and Swamp Thing would be... I mean, in that sense, Swamp Thing is unique because all the other big guns that you might want to name are going to be superheroes. But outside the superhero genre, who else really is there? I mean, there may be Sandman. This is going to make our next conversation with Rob a little bit awkward. I'm I'm glad I recorded the next segment a while ago. (laughs) So what, Aquaman is the one you bump off? Uh, Uh, I mean, before Batman, Robin, Superman. Oh, Robin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think... Swamp Thing is at least as uh, visible as as any of those Justice League characters, mm-hmm. Super Friends characters, you know. And going back to the origins of this podcast, when I was wrapping up Secret Origins podcast, I was bringing that to a close at the same time that I met Bernie Wrightson at a con. I got him to sign my uh, DC special series mm-hmm. that reprinted the first couple issues of this series, and 
and I devoured those and, and got all of these reprints and really, because I had read the more Swamp Thing, but this was my first time going back to the original stuff and I liked it so much. I was like, I want a podcast about these. I didn't want to do a Swamp Thing Index show, so I folded my passion for this run into what became Midnight, the podcasting hour. And the remit was covering the first 10 issues, covering the Bernie Wrightson run, which we have now done. So uh, of all my goals that I had for this podcast, I accomplished Night Force and now this one. So we'll, we'll see. So good, 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 <laughs> good completion record, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, Cisco, thank you very much for uh, joining me on this episode to talk about these last two issues. Uh, where else can people find you if they want to hear more about you in the podcastosphere or blogosphere? Well, in the blogosphere, the blog is called Cisco's Blog of Geekery, and there are there are articles every day there. I've I've been doing that for like thirteen years, so maybe it's fourteen by now. I, I, I I've lost track. So a lot of material for uh, people who love comics and science fiction programs and and whatnot, and uh, of course on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, you mentioned a couple shows already, but um, you know I have a whole uh, a, a whole slate of shows that uh, usually pop up on every Tuesday. So that's Canada Day at the network. Check it out. <laughs> All right, thank you very much as always. People, we are going to take a break right now to play a promo for one of Siskoid's many shows. And after that, Rob Kelly is going to join me to discuss The Phantom Stranger. Stick around. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994. Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember Legion. We're back, folks, and joining me once again, making his fifth appearance on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. So he does get a special jacket. It's Mr. Rob Kelly himself. What's up, Rob? I'm so excited. I'm a five-timer. This is awesome. Five-timer. Yeah, always happy to have you back. Uh, You were the very first guest on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, and so... I think it's fitting that you were here for another auspicious occasion. This is something that I teased years ago when the show began. I'm finally getting around to it. Dear listeners, we are finally going to read an issue of The Phantom Stranger. This is a subject and a series that I've wanted to incorporate for a while now, and Rob, as much as anybody, championed that. In fact, when I first started Midnight, you sent me a stack, like like half a dozen or more Phantom Stranger comics, including the issue that we're going to be covering here. Uh, and I know that you are a huge Phantom Stranger fan, so you used to blog about him. Where does that interest come from? It had to be from uh, his appearances in Justice League, because I, I sort of liked that, where he would kind of come and go as he pleased. Uh, and then later on, I started buying back issues of his series 
through the first comic book store that I ever bought it because it's Jim Aparo because of course you know right there and then I just I don't know I always liked this character and then when I when I later completed my run of his original book I still say that the Len Wein Jim Aparo uh, stories plus some other ones this one's the one we're going to be talking about is by Jerry Conway but basically the Jim Aparo era of Phantom Stranger is to me one of the great runs of DC Comics and it's relatively unheralded uh, I think these are every single story to me is is fascinating really well done beautifully drawn moody it's got the weird combination of superheroes with like 70s supernatural horror i just think they are great great comics so uh i'm i that that really cemented my love of this character and then he's appeared all you know throughout Mm -hmm. the years is here and there but exactly he's always been one of my favorites yeah, they're cool. He got such a striking look and like a visual distinctive look and appearance that I really, really like. And uh yeah, turtleneck I, and medallion can't beat it. <laughs> yeah. Plus you can't like I mean, is he wearing a like a bandito mask or is it just the shadow of the hat? So Love it. Love it. Uh we are talking about Phantom Stranger number ten. This one has a cover date of November or December nineteen seventy, but according to Mike's Amazing World, the actual on sale date was September fifteenth. The book cost 15 cents, and it sports an all-time great cover by Neil Adams. What do you think of this cover? Oh, man. I mean, this belongs on a ser- This belongs on the cover of a series of Phantom Stranger uh, gothic romance novels <laughs> that unfortunately never got made. Uh, but yeah, th- I mean, Neil Adams just went nuts with the cross-hatching. I mean, just the amount of time he took to sit there. Actually, you know what? Now that I look at it, there's some cross-hatching, but I also think there might be some charcoal in here. Uh. I mean, he clearly went to town on this thing, and uh, I love the I love the frame of it, that it's all black, and then we have this hand beckoning this very beautiful woman with a candle. I mean, it's everything. It's everything you want in, like, a gothic cup. There's a bat flying around inside the house <laughs> for, some, for no good reason. We see the Phantom Stranger's uh, shadow in the background. It's it's just gorgeous, and I, it was again. It's I'm I'm so impressed that these artists went to this effort knowing that the reproduction probably wouldn't be all that great. Now, of course, on the cover, you've got a higher standard of paper, mm-hmm. so Neil Adams was I'm sure sure that this would reproduce a little better, and I'm sure he probably got involved because we know that he was not shy about yeah, yeah. talking to the production department and making sure that things looked right. But boy, it's it's. The amount of extra work that he put into this, just for this cover, uh, to me is it's just startling, and it's just reminds you of like just how good he was. Right, right. Yeah, this is not only one of my favorite Phantom Stranger images of all time. Uh, this is like one of my favorite covers of this entire genre. Um, I, I actually I use this cover for the banner for Midnight the Podcasting Hour on the website and the Facebook page. Uh, I just think this is terrific. Like just like the arrangement with you know the frame of like this this door door frame and like with the hand and the curved staircase and the woman and and you're right the Phantom Stranger's shadow, but it's not just the shadow on the wall. You actually get the white eyes, the tri- the mm-hmm. white triangles of his eyes and everything like that. It's it's spooky. It's gothic. It is moody. The, the texture of it, yeah, just whatever he was doing with the hatching or the charcoal or something, it's it's incredible. This looks like a book cover, so. And no cover copy. Nobody nobody no. gumming it up with, you know, in this issue, you yeah. know, a reprint from Metamorpho, you know, or anything like that. It's like <laughs> just the image. I think that's great. Yeah. And I love, like, the, the up the top left corner, like the DC Phantom Stranger. It's not the DC Bullet. It's that bat shape. I love that thing. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Great. All right. This story from this issue is death call not my name it's written by jerry conway and drawn by jim aparo three women named irene michelle and lottie meet at a nightclub with a classic movie monster theme going on 
As the ladies complain that no exciting men seem interested in them, one handsome and yet sinister-looking man approaches their table and asks Lottie to dance. On the dance floor, he tells Lottie that his name is Tanarak, and he stares deeply into her with eyes so intense they seem to glow. After the song ends, Lottie returns to the table in a daze, unable to answer her friend's questions. After a moment, she stands and abruptly falls down dead on the floor. Dr. Terrence 13 arrives on the scene and questions Lottie's friends, Irene and Michelle, as well as the club goers. When the phantom stranger arrives, Dr. 13 bitterly accuses him of having some kind of part in the woman's death. The phantom stranger dismisses this accusation without taking much offense, and declares that Lottie's death is the result of her soul being siphoned from her body. Dr. 13 has been investigating a string of similar unexplained deaths like this. Meanwhile, Irene and Michelle leave the club, distraught over their dead friend. As they walk down the dark and foggy street, however, some malevolent thing attacks them from the shadows. The sound of a blood-curdling scream reaches the Phantom Stranger and Dr. 13 back at the club. The two rush out and find Irene alone on the street, crying and mumbling about his eyes, as though she were hypnotized. The Phantom Stranger uses his power to bring Irene back to her senses. She tells them that the same man who attacked Lottie, this Tanarak, was waiting for them and took Michelle away. The Phantom Stranger knows of Tanarak and believes him a mad practitioner of alchemy and sorcery. Of course, Dr. Thirteen believes none of this because that's his thing. And he tells the Phantom Stranger he doesn't want to team up, which turns out to be fine because the Phantom Stranger disappears before Thirteen is even done talking. Elsewhere, Tanarak takes Michelle to his home, which looks more like a massive stone castle than a townhouse. He leads her down the stairs, showing her the exotic treasures he has collected, and all the while referring to her as Diana. He recalls how, as a young British boy living in Cairo, he and his friend Diana robbed a fruit stand. Diana escaped, but young Tanarak was caught, and the vendor forced Tanarak to look at a corpse as a warning for what would happen if he stole again. Tanarak took the wrong message to heart. He became obsessed with death or with cheating it specifically. He studied the ancient arts of alchemy and other practices in order to defeat death. Meanwhile, Dr. Thirteen and Irene questioned the locals in the neighborhood, the unexplained deaths all happening within the same area. Dr. Thirteen believes that he can find the killer, eventually. In a chamber beneath Tanarak's home, he lays Michelle on a table in front of a gigantic gold statue of himself. Tanarak discovered the secret of eternal life. He transferred his own soul into the gold statue, while he subsists on the souls of others, a kind of soul-sucking vampire, which has allowed him to survive. He holds up a potion for Michelle to drink, telling her it will take her soul as well, and then they can be together for all time. Tanarak and his beloved Diana. But before he can force her to drink, the phantom stranger shows up. Tanarak whips the death potion at the stranger, who deflects it into the air, but the potion pours out onto his cape. Feeling the touch of death weaken him, the phantom stranger rips off his cake and knocks Tanarak back with a powerful punch. Tanarak tries to counterattack with the bloodstone, but phantom stranger gets his hands on the alchemist and throttles him. As Tanarak reaches for another occult object to use as a weapon, the Phantom Stranger knocks him back. Tanarak falls against the giant gold statue, dislodging it. The statue comes down right on top of Tanarak, 
crushing him and shatters into pieces on the floor. At that moment, Dr. 13 and Irene come in. Michelle wakes from the trance Tanarak had held her under. Dr. 13 posits a number of scientific explanations for all of these events, but the Phantom Stranger is no more interested in listening to them than I am, and he disappears. The end. All right, Rob, what did you think? I have so much to say about this issue. Where do you want me to start? I mean, um, well, I mean, I, I threw out a bunch of issues where we could start to do a Phantom Stranger one, and, and you picked this one for a reason. Um, and, and beyond the cover, I do really, really enjoy the story. For I guess first part of this, what you mentioned was this is the first appearance of Tanarak. So let's start with him. Yes, this is the debut of uh, finally a Phantom Stranger villain, uh, an ongoing villain. He would have another. There would be Tala as well. Uh, they were big on the T villains <laughs> for Phantom Stranger. But yeah, he didn't have too many recurring villains, so this is the introduction of him. Obviously, Jerry Conway was a pretty big fan of the uh, Universal uh, horror movie The Mummy, since it's the same exact plot, because <laughs> <laughs> it's got, you know, Imhotep. Imhotep wants to find his beloved and, and you know he finds her in the modern version and then he kidnaps her and he's gonna like you know you and i are gonna be together forever so there's that uh i love how much of a raging dick dr 13 is i mean how you can just continue to exist in the dcu and exist that there's no supernatural is <laughs> you know is denial on a on a herculean level for pete's sakes uh i love the fact that we see a hippie in this issue, um, uh, he's got this Boy, big. Do we? Boy, yeah, do we. I mean, yeah, he looks like he's one of like hermits. Hermits. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, he doesn't share a panel with the Phantom Stranger, which is too bad because I would have loved to have seen that. And look, anybody know anyone who's been listening to this network for a couple of years knows I Jim Mapero is my all time favorite comic book artist. Period, and I go on and on about him. But it's art jobs like this is why I love this guy so much. He crushes the art job on this story. From the imaginative layouts, you've got that opening with the Phantom Stranger pointing to three panels that you're supposed to be reading. Mm-hmm. And the three the three panels actually like start like waving out like they in perspective they get larger as they get closer to like it's like the Star Wars lettering. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring up a, a <laughs> di- difficult subject for your mind. Um, yeah, I mean uh, the the splash page, the death call not my name, and everything's on this tilted angle is fantastic. I love the interstitial break. Uh, in part two, which reminds me of like a TV show, like, you know, it's like part two, <laughs> knock, not on my door. I love all that. Tanarak is really cool. The flashback is fantastic. I mean, talk about taking, as you said, talk about taking the wrong lesson. <laughs> my God, this kid, somebody shows Tanarak a dead body and he's like, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to learning how to cheat death. Like, really? <laughs> that's your that's your takeaway from this? Um, I love the, the the hippie girls. I love the, the sort of like, I love how beautiful they are and their little hip hugger dresses i love that i love that this issue has a bonus fan of stranger story which is only three pages long about an inflatable crocodile <laughs> which is like reads like almost like phantom stranger crossed with archie in some weird way i love tenor x giant gold statue as a tribute to himself i gotta get one of those this there's this thing is just i love it from beginning to end it is so much fun conway just does a great job in the story and apero just kills it. I love that the uh, there's a scream that goes from pan- from one panel to the next. It continues on like it's waving on. I love that. Just, this is like one of the best Fan of Stranger stories ever. I love it. I love it. Love it. Uh, yeah, it's it's so much fun. Um, 
Uh, just kind of going through hitting some of those things that you mentioned. Um, for for what club are these ladies in that has like oh, all these posters so of awesome. movie monsters? There's posters of Frankenstein and werewolf on the wall. It's like where this, are this, they? This is a club that Chris Franklin wishes existed. He would just he go does. there every day. It's great. But it, it looks like it's got like this castle motif. Like the walls are brick, but there are like these like archways and and like little alcoves and everything. It's, it's like great. Where are they? Oh, actually, I thought that was like a witch or something. Yeah, actually, no, I'm the, on page three. I never caught this until I was just looking now. On the title page, Death Calling Out My Name, uh, you see Tannerek running up the stairs and like heading out. He's That's where he's like disappearing. Yeah, um, right, right, yeah. He's like, no, no one will notice while I head up. Uh, yeah. I, you know, in, in the era of hippies, wearing a cape wasn't that weird a thing. So, you know, <laughs> you could get away with it. Uh, I, I need to come back to the hippie, but um, I like that, you know, we get these three women and the first one that we see, the one, the one who is killed, unfortunately... Lottie, I like that Aparo doesn't make her the same generic body shape that he, that other you know comic book women tend to have. Uh, I mean, she's slightly larger, hippie. She's got a different haircut and everything. They even um, reference that a little bit, but it's where Tanarak takes Lottie away first, and it's the, one of the other women who is you know by general you know by a lot of people would kind of be the hotter one. Is like Lottie? I can't believe it. Like even she's like. Hey, wait a minute! What's going on here? That's a nice little character detail. Um, but the thing that I had to point out was the hippie in this case. Let's go love this guy. Oh yeah, okay. So like this weird sort of pork pie hat. He's got no chains, but he's got what looks to be like a brown fur vest or something. And and the few panels that we see of him, the way he's colored, it looks like he might have like a greenish or some kind of something shirt underneath that and bluish or darker pants, it's the same outfit that Marvel's Monster of Frankenstein wears. <laughs> That's right, yes. Now, yes. this would have preceded that by, like, three years. But I was like, oh, my gosh. It's, 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 I think Monster I, of Frankenstein stole this guy's outfit. I never thought of the Frankenstein as a hippie, but, you know, okay. Yeah, yeah. I can understand that, I guess, with tracks. I, I also, I just... I love the world that this story is set in, that these women can leave this nightclub and just they're instantly on like a fog covered like yeah, street. It's great. Just, like yeah. abandoned, like nobody is there and it's just the fog is there and all of a sudden they're in, you know, Victorian London. <laughs> Why did somebody put this nightclub in on the Scottish Moors? It's kinda weird, <laughs> but all right. It's really like Jack the Ripper's gonna come by in any second. I also like that like Phantom Stranger and Doctor Thirteen are the investigating police of the situation. Nobody's called the cops or they're not nope. waiting for the cops. Like, they talk to these girls briefly, and then the girls leave. It's like, this is a crime scene where your friend died. You have to give a statement. Even though this, these stories clearly take place in the modern world, because there's actually issues where Phantom Strangers, like, is on a plane and stuff, mm-hmm. it does seem like they, they exist in sort of the same weird nowhere world that the Swamp Thing stories take place in, where it's like, it, it is in the 70s, right? But yet, <laughs> there's no, there doesn't seem to be a lot of modern accoutrement or stuff like that, and as you said, there's no police, really. Everybody yeah. just kind of does what they want. Th- Dr. 13 is basically, like, the, the, the governing body here, which is ridiculous, of course, because as I said, he's a massive dick. Right. I mean, that that was just – that must have been of the time. There was something about it because, like, Marvel did the same thing. Tomb of Dracula. Gene Cohen made it. Like, New York City streets looked like it was, you know, instead of 1975, it was, you know, London in 1830 or something like that. <laughs> we also get the Phantom Stranger uh, without his cloak. Yes. He, just gets, he finally just hauls off and just punches Tanarak, which is great. I he's, like that. He's taking his cape off and throwing hands. I love <laughs> 
I love it. I, l- I like that he is all big on the spiritual falderall, but once in a while he's like, yeah, I just got a DECA guy, which is cool. And then after he punches Tanarak and Tanarak drops the, the bloodstone, we see Phantom Stranger walking behind him with his fists cocked. Yes. And he's he's kind of like Henry Cavill in that last Mission Impossible <laughs> movie where he's like, he's ready to really beat down. That was great. <laughs> and he like he picks him up and he's like shouting at him and giving like like this is a Phantom Stranger who doesn't even just get physical in the story he gets emotional yeah oh he gets like, all mad yeah he yep. is like he is offended by what this guy thinks of life and death and the lessons of this whole thing and I, I just think this is great to see the Phantom Stranger react like this. Um, I also like the I, as much as I'm talking about all the big moments. I really like that moment where he has the girl look into his uh, Irene, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Look into my eyes." And the panel, there's no dialogue, there's nothing, and like obviously, you know, Aparo is trying to convey that like looking into the eyes of the Phantom Stranger is like a very weird thing, mm-hmm. you know. And she she's not scared, but it's it's meaningful, and it's not something that a lot of people get to do because the Phantom Stranger purposely kind of keeps uh, people. He's big on the social distancing; like, he stays away from. Everybody everybody at a given point but i i like that that that, that for all how much crazy stuff goes on there is that nice little quiet moment right right i like the uh of course um jk rowling did not uh, invent it neither did conway but like this idea like the statue that holds his soul sort of like the horcrux in the harry potter verse Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. where voldemort is able to separate his soul into all these different objects and that's what keeps him immortal until those things are destroyed and tanarak kind of has the same plan here um, it, you're right. Like as I was going through this, I was like, I've seen this plot before in, yeah. in monster yeah. movies. It's like, and why not? I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it works just fine. Yeah, yeah. you can just keep reusing it. So whatever. But uh, Tanner, I love. By the way, Tanneract's widow's peak is one for the ages because it is practically between his eyes. Like oh, yeah. it goes so far down. <laughs> it's like, is that your hair, dude, or is that like a thing? I don't. Is that like a one of like thuggy cult skull caps? I don't. We can't really yeah. tell. I, I wonder if it was in the script or if this was a Paris note, but like, I wonder if Conway just said, yeah, this guy basically, he looks like Satan wearing a three-piece suit. Yeah, he's Al- he's Aleister Crowley. He's yes, clearly yeah. Aleister Crowley. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. Exactly. And he was, you know, they would later give him um, an all-white suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would become sort of his costume. And, he, you know, he would continue to, uh, no pun intended, bedevil the Phantom Stranger for many years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about Doctor Thirteen? I think we've already established he's a raging dick. He's a, <laughs> I, 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 I get the idea that he's a ghost debunker. And uh, but I mean, you just I, I've said this on many other shows. You th- there is no way anyone that lives in the DC universe is not on some level of spiritual beliefs. There are there cannot be any uh, atheists in the DCU. Mike Gillis does not exist in the DC <laughs> universe because there's, there's there's like daily evidence of this of other worlds that goes I mean on a regular basis the specter appears and just starts tearing things apart. I mean you there's just no way you can and so the fact that he is so indefatigable in his unbelief and he's a giant I keep using that word he's a giant dick about it on top of it. He's always constantly like obviously it's plated pig iron painted with a film of so like he's condescending on top of it so i i I appreciate that they've tried to kind of like make him the nice counterpoint to all the spiritual stuff going on but it's just come on dr 13 you just give it up already and that's i don't like the character Uh, yeah i'll just put it like for for all of the reasons you said i don't like him and it's because i don't think the character works 
kind of in in the same way I don't think Hawk and Dove really work in you know an action adventure comics medium. I just think there's some sort of like natural flaw. Like I think you can do this type of story once, but like after that, it's like the nature of the character, like everything that he believes is wrong. So you can't take him as an expert in anything. After so many stories, it's like you're just a freaking idiot. Yeah. Like, if yeah. this is what you believe, if you are refusing to believe what your eyes and all of your senses tell you, and what we as the audience do know and want to believe, then there's no reason to like this guy or give him any credibility. But then it's like, okay, so then you can have him maybe as he, if he's the antagonist, if he's kind of like a recurring villain who just kind of needles the hero a little bit the way a J. Jonah Jameson did, but... I think DC wanted to do more of them. Otherwise, you wouldn't name him Doctor 13. You wouldn't give him, like, a character type of thing, like, where he would have his own stories and his own adventures and, like, a kind of occultish superhero type of name. You would just call him Doctor whatever from the Incredible Hulk TV show, the guy who's always following. Um, right, yeah. I mean, you could – I mean, he, he he's an older character. He didn't, he didn't debut in The Phantom Stranger, and he was – a ghost debunker and you could write adventures with him doing like a Scooby-Doo kind of thing where he's constantly unmasking people and it was just old old man Carruthers who wanted to inherit the amusement park or whatever but you got to keep him in that world the minute you move him into the world where the Phantom Stranger is the protagonist or any of the DC supernatural characters uh, you know uh, who all got black color coding and who's who by the way uh, <laughs> it just it just doesn't it, it just doesn't make any make any sense and again He's always been written as a jerk on top of it, which mm-hmm. makes it even worse. So it, you're just like, yeah, okay, here's the drip. Doctor Thirteen to show up and tell everybody not to have any fun. Right. So uh, yeah. So for the purposes of this story, I mean, I think it kind of works because we're not supposed to sympathize. I mean, we know that you know yeah, Doctor right. Stranger or Phantom Stranger is the one who is right, and Phantom Stranger is the one who takes charge and is the man of action in the end and saves the day. And Doctor Thirteen shows up too late to do anything important. Uh, yeah. I, I like that fact that he's like, you know, there there's scientific evidence, and and <laughs> the stranger's just like, yeah, you you go on with that, peace out. He's yeah. like, he's like I, I don't have time to listen to this. If if he was a character in a Batman movie, he would be Rachel Dawes. He's the one who's like, Bruce, you're so terrible. Why don't you do something? And like, she was built to be wrong in that movie because mm-hmm. she's always admonishing Bruce Wayne for being a flipper to gibbet. When the audience knows. He's Batman. Stop picking on him. He's Batman. He, he's doing something. And Doctor Thirteen is set up to fail here because we clearly know the DC universe is full of supernatural characters. So right. that's just that's just how he was written. But you know, and there's a reason why there's no Doctor Thirteen movie. <laughs> I'm sure there are other reasons. <laughs> Probably yes. Um. Yeah. But but that that. Criticism aside, I I like this story so much. I yeah, Aparo's art is terrific. Um, that that punch, that, that hell of a punch when he knocks oh, Tanner, uh when he knocks Tanner flat. That, that was so good. Um, yeah, I, I'm just I yeah, it's just seeing him get physical at the end of this is really great. Just not only that punch, but when he's like you're right when he's chasing him when he's there, like chasing him down with his fists, and when he grabs him by the collar of his cape and he's like in his face. Yeah, this is this is such a fun story. I'm glad we got a chance to review this one. Um, yeah, so where else can we find you on the podcast network? Uh, well, of course, yeah, I'm part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, where I co-host uh, the JLU cast with my wife Cindy. <laughs> awesome! Thank you very much, Rob. Folks, we're going <laughs> we're going to take a, a promo. Huh? It's like, who am I talking to? I, of course. I'm <laughs> 
I've earned a punch for that one. Yeah. All right, Nathaniel, we are going to take a promo break <laughs> right here, and then I'll come back to read your listener feedback. From ah, that's going to sound confusing. <laughs> then, folks, I will be back to read your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's for all mankind, a super friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my super friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. Last episode, I covered Swamp Thing issues 6, 7, and 8 with my guests from the Long Box of Darkness and Into the Weird podcasts, Herman and Billy. We got some appreciation on social media, which is great. Thank you so much. And these are the comments left on the Fire and Water podcast website. First up, Brian Linton said, I have a two-part question and a thought regarding Swamp Thing number 6. One, on the bottom left panel of page 11, does Swamp Thing actually shout the word no out loud? Because that looks like a speech balloon, rather than his usual thought balloons. If so, is that the first time he's spoken, or am I forgetting an early appearance of him actually speaking? Uh, answer that question. That was something I never quite liked about the lettering is I, I found it very confusing when Swamp Thing was speaking out loud and when he was thinking, because the balloons often looked the same or interchangeable, and because a lot of times people didn't react to what he might have been saying aloud, so you kind of got the impression that he was thinking. I think as far back as the first issue, though, when he attacks the the goons in the car uh, for revenge, when he makes kind of his first public appearance, I think he shouts no in that one, so if, if he was speaking aloud that time, that would have been the first one, but... Uh, Brian's second question, number two, on the bottom right panel of page 15, where Swamp Thing is thinking stop it over and over again, the crump and squee sound effects led me to believe that Swamp Thing just smashed Linda Bot himself. If I'm reading that correctly, then that act really adds to the emotional impact of those six boxes, those six panels, sorry. Um, yeah, I understand how you can see that. Uh, if he was, like, so broken up that he's just trying to hold the Linda, essentially, closer to his body so much that he's crushing it to his chest and actually breaking it even more so, not knowing his own strength, sort of as the monster tends to do in fiction. Um, yeah, that definitely adds to, to some of the emotional weight, if that was the intention. I don't know, but uh, I can see it reading that way, and I like it, yeah. Uh, and Brian said, thanks for another remarkable episode. The more I listen to the show, the more I grow, like a malignant Cthulhu cancer, to appreciate Wrightson's artwork and the higher Swamp Thing climbs on my list of favorite DC characters. I am very much the same way um, when I first started reading these. Like, Wrightson vaulted to the top of my list, uh, and Swamp Thing is definitely a character that I enjoy so much more than I used to. 
uh, Chris Franklin from the House of Franklinstein and other shows that he hosts with his wife Cindy, along with me and Rob Kelly on this very network. Chris said, I'm kind of surprised the Batman issue was the least favorite, but I'm a Batman guy first and foremost. I totally get that it's much more of a Batman story, and you get the idea that Ween and Wrightson were just itching to show what they could do with the character. We'll show Denny and Neil how it's done. Yeah, I realized when I was editing this show that I don't think I made my point quite clear during the discussion. I don't think issue 7, which is the Batman issue, is the worst of the three that we covered. In fact, the opposite. It's my favorite of the three as a pure comic, as a four-color adventure. It's delightful, but I think what I tried and kind of failed to explain was that it's the least swamp thing of all of the rights and issues. It's this weird little oddity that doesn't really belong, and not just because of the guest appearance of a superhero, but I think Ween wasn't writing the same Swamp Thing. That I, I said that a couple times in the episode. I think this was a mislabeled Brave and the Bold comic. Um, now, had it been in the Brave and the Bold, it would have been one of my favorite issues of that entire series. So, yeah. Uh, so, no, it's not that I think issue 7 is worse than the other two. It's just the outlier, I guess. Uh, Chris then said, I think Wrightson was the first artist to take Batman's ears and cape to extreme lengths. This issue is single-handedly responsible for the career of Kelly Jones, I think. Whew, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, Kelly might actually agree with that. So, uh, Kevin from New Orleans said, Thank you for this episode because years ago I got Neil Gaiman's Books of Magic miniseries and Monagala was referenced in issue 4. For years I have tried to find anything about him with no luck, so thank you. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I had no idea about that, but it's it's very cool. I've never read the Books of Magic miniseries. I, I really should do that. Um, it's very cool if Gaiman included a reference to Monogla. It's such an obscure thing in the book. Um, but yeah, happy that we could finally give you some context for that. And Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said... Billy and Herman did a spookily splendid job as co-hosts. It was great that you could recap one issue each and then share opinions and expertise. These really are remarkable comics. The artwork manages to be grotesque yet sumptuous. Mind, Swampy in a trench coat is ludicrous. Hey, a trench coat and a hat is the greatest disguise ever. It hides the thing. It hides Ninja Turtles. Marvel had Godzilla disguised in a trench coat. Godzilla? So... Don't be dissing on Swamp Thing's disguise. That is a perfect costume. And Martin also said, I adore PJ Frightful, but Neveros was a delight. So demonically urbane. And the last thing that Martin said was, I wonder if Etrigan will ever guest host. I'd love to hear some good rhymes. To which I replied, Just thinking of that, I'm already engrossed. A full intro in verse would drive me to crimes. And with that, I lay another episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour to rest. I want to thank Rob Kelly and Siskoid for appearing on this episode, and Oscar Constantine for pitching in during the intro. Next episode, episode 31, will be out just in time for Halloween. Hope you're looking forward to it, listeners, because I have been building toward this one for a while. Tune in to find out the secret origin of PJ Frightful. What?
Midnight, the podcasting hour is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support Midnight, the podcasting hour, and the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. Special thanks to all of our generous supporters who keep this show alive. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Midnight the Podcasting Hour is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and have a good midnight. Midnight.